Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. And if you do, please turn in them to Matthew chapter 10, and you'll fa- find Matthew 10, 24 on page 815 of the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs. And as always, if one of those would bless you, please take it. If it would bless someone else, take it and give it to them. Matthew 10, and we'll start in verse 24. Do any of you remember that TV show from a while back called Fear Factor? There's one maybe a bit more recent, uh, a show that is not quite the same idea as Fear Factor, where people were basically tortured for everyone's entertainment, facing various kinds of fears. Chris Hemsworth, the guy who plays Thor, has a Disney Plus show apparently on facing certain things and testing his, his body and his mental strength and everything else. I think it's called Limitless. We enjoy sometimes seeing how different people deal with fear. The kinds of things that people are afraid of are sometimes interesting to us. And people facing their fears can actually be inspiring, can be fascinating. Of course, like Fear Factor, it can also turn into a kind of indulgence of watching other people harm themselves for our own entertainment. But there are certainly harmless and appropriate ways to observe people facing their fears and to deal with them. And in fact, we might admire someone who faces their fears for a noble reason. For example, my wife does not particularly like snakes, spiders, or cockroaches, but I am certain that she would face one to protect one of our children right? Okay, good. (laughs) I was certain, then I wondered. There are examples of people in our own lives, perhaps, stories that you have heard of people doing this very kind of thing, facing something that they are afraid of for the sake of something or someone that is ultimately more important to them than preserving themselves from whatever it is that they're afraid of, and not just for entertainment value, like a, like a TV show, some novel thing, but a, a real, consequential, uh, selfless, and virtuous reason. Well, today's passage is primarily about how Jesus' apostles were to think about fear in their context of the mission that he was sending them on. Three times in this passage in Matthew 10, verses 24 through 33, we see a call to not fear. In verse 26, you see the phrase, so have no fear. In verse 28, you see the phrase, and do not fear. And in verse 31, fear not. And I think this is a great example of the kinds of facing fears that we should admire. But... Let's be very careful not to dumb down this passage to a sort of Christians need to face their fears kind of message. You can find face your fears messages in plenty on Instagram or in a motivational poster at the doctor's office. But what Matthew 10 verses 24 through 33 is talking about is something far deeper, far more consequential, and with eternal value. Not just facing a snake or a cockroach for your child. Not just holding your breath underwater for however long until you start to freak out just to test the limits of your body. Not bungee jumping on TV. Rather, today's passage is about dealing with the fears that come in gospel-spreading, kingdom-proclaiming mission as the apostles and other disciples of Jesus were called to do. 
Now remember the context of this passage. This is a relatively small section, these verses before us, in the middle of a larger section of Matthew's record of Jesus' second discourse in, his, in Matthew's book. The first large discourse is the Sermon on the Mount. We've been through that. The second discourse is found in chapter 10, verse 5, through the end of chapter 10. And in general, the gist of this second discourse is teaching from Jesus on the mission that he was sending his apostles on. And it was specifically this discourse teaching about the reality of suffering and sacrifice that comes in the service of King Jesus. But not without the assurance of his care and even rewards. So keep that context in mind as we look more closely at this passage. And at the heart of this specific section of Jesus' teaching, we see something that is vital for all disciples to take to heart in their own life of mission. Remember, these are words originally to the 12 apostles. The apostles were Jesus' original specific audience, you might say, in this passage. And they are very different from us in some important ways. And they would have had, they were going to have a different audience than we do. They were given different authority than we have. They were going to face different kinds of suffering than most of us ever will. And they were indeed even in a phase of redemptive history that we are not in. They were given authority from Jesus. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says, He gave them authority. They were given authority to perform miracles of healing, to resurrect people from the dead, to perform exorcisms of demons in order to point to the arrival of King Jesus and his kingdom. In verse 5 of chapter 10, they were called to stay focused on the Jews. Different strategy than we have today. In chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, they were promised persecution of even a severe nature. And of course, we know from the broader context of the whole of the Bible that they were in a much earlier and different phase or stage of God's salvation plan and that Jesus was right in the middle of his earthly ministering physically on earth, gathering disciples well before, at least in the, in the scope of that very moment in time, his sacrificial atoning death and resurrection from the dead. So we can't just read this passage with a kind of one-to-one parallel in mind, but at the same time, as we move forward in the mission that Jesus has called us to, which by the way is very clearly found at the end of this very book when Jesus calls all of his disciples to go and make disciples, we need these words from Jesus for our own context as well. Because, like the apostles, though in different ways, we too will face suffering for the spread of the gospel. And we too will have to come to grips with the right and wrong kinds of fear as we suffer. And so to understand this, I'd like to try to follow the flow of thought in this passage and frame it in four dependent clauses The first of which is, and I'm just sort of trying to summarize these verses. Number one, since you will be mistreated like Jesus. Number two, don't be afraid, but be bold. Number three, because God is sovereign. And number four, because Jesus is just. I think that's the basic flow of thought that we have here. So number one, this first conditional clause, since you will be mistreated, found in verses 24 and 25. 
The concept of persecution and suffering is a recurring theme in this section of Jesus' teaching. certainly occurs in other places throughout the Scriptures as well. It was present in the passage just previous to this one. In verse 19, Jesus said, When they deliver you over to the authorities who will torture you, abuse you, imprison you. And so Jesus assumes the suffering of his servants. And that is part of the whole big point of this chapter, this section in discourse number two from Jesus. And it is at the heart of what I'm calling this first clause from Jesus. Let's read it again. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Here again, Jesus is assuming that his followers will suffer. And in these verses, he's talking about the kind of suffering that comes from being mistreated by people. But Jesus is getting at something more specific than what we might consider general kinds of mistreatment for various reasons. He is talking about the kind of mistreatment that is just like the kind of mistreatment that he would suffer and would later suffer in multiple ways and indeed that he would face throughout his ministry and his mission up until the cross itself. And so Jesus isn't just talking about any old kind of mistreatment as if every kind of thing that happens that we don't like is somehow what he's talking here. Rather, he is talking specifically about mistreatment aimed at his followers because of their gospel allegiance, sharing in his mistreatment. That is what Jesus means when he says that a disciple is not above his teacher or a servant above his master. And that if the house, that the master of the house is mistreated, it makes sense that his household will be too. And for us, this master slash household language is, is an illustration about how those who live and work in the household of the head of a house will share in whatever kind of reputation that master has. But we, in our context, at least I don't know of anyone in this room who does, live in a Downton Abbey kind of a situation. But if you think of it that way, it maybe makes a little more sense because the family or the staff of that fictional abbey were naturally associated with the house on the whole under the heads of that family. And so that's what Jesus is illustrating with this master-servant-household metaphor. Disciples, or followers, or students, will look like their master, leader, or teacher. And if their master is mistreated, maligned, the word here in my ESV, in other words, slandered, then so will necessarily his disciples be. Now, the original Greek version of this text of Scripture does not have a word for maligned in it. You've got this here at the end of verse 25. How much more will they malign those of his household? That is actually a a translation interpretative decision to put in that phrase to sort of explain what Jesus means with this whole Beelzebul thing. 
What Jesus is talking about here, and that is clearly in the Greek when it says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, what he's talking about regarding the master being called Beelzebul is being accused, him, the master, being accused of being under some sort of demonic influence. And there are some debates as to what exactly Beelzebul means here, whether or not Jesus is talking about Satan, or he's talking about false gods, or he's just talking about demon activity. But either way, you get the idea. What Jesus is saying here is that he, the master in this illustration, is going to be accused of doing what he's doing under the influence of demons, evil spirits, or what have you rather than because of his genuinely being the Son of God with dominion and authority. And that therefore, his disciples can expect to be falsely accused in similar ways. And if you were to translate this perhaps a little more literally without that whole malign thing, it could say something like, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more those of his household? Interestingly, this comes up in just a couple of chapters. Chapter 12, verse 24, which we'll get in not too long. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man and is then immediately accused of having done it because of being in league with the demons. And so what Jesus says here in chapter 10, verse 25, is fulfilled in chapter 12, verse 24. And so the point is, if Jesus is mistreated, if the master is accused of doing what he's doing wrongly, slandered, therefore, maligned, you might say, then his disciples can expect the same thing. Because a disciple is not above his teacher. A servant is not above his master. They will go where their teacher, where their master goes because they're his disciple. And so, while all kinds of suffering, all kinds of mistreatment can be expected by Jesus' disciples, the specific kind of mistreatment that Jesus is talking about here is related to misunderstanding of one's intentions and actions and even falsely accusing and indeed slandering them and perhaps even spreading those falsehoods. And in a very general way, I know some of you know what that's like. I do. And it hurts. It's a uniquely damaging and painful kind of mistreatment. And though I've never been accused of having done something under demon influence, you know what it's like to have been slandered. You know what it's like to have been mistreated in a way sort of like this. But Jesus is assuming that this is going to be part of the experience of his apostles because following him means being like him and he was going through it, so therefore they would go through it because they're like him, because they follow him. And not just Beelzebul-type accusations. His whole path on earth included misunderstanding included false accusations, included mistreatment of various kinds. And it is indeed at the heart of everything that led to a cross where the worst kind of unjust treatment and suffering took place. 
Jesus was falsely accused, falsely tried, betrayed and abandoned and unjustly tortured and hanged by nails on a cross as a criminal, even though he never once committed a single solitary sin. So you see, mistreatment and false accusations were at the heart of the suffering of Christ. But Jesus is saying here in chapter 10, since it is a mistreatment that is shared with him, since you will be mistreated with Jesus, clause number one, now, clause number two, and I think the central one, don't be afraid, be bold. Jesus is saying here, because you will be mistreated, don't be afraid. Now this is where perhaps we might go, wait, I must have missed something. Let me read that again. It sounded like Jesus just said, so don't be afraid. Right after he said, you're going to suffer. But you're right, that's exactly what it is saying. It is logically connected to the words before it. Since you will be mistreated. And not just you will be mistreated, but since you will be mistreated like I am. And that's very important. The point is that the call to fearlessness and boldness in mission from Jesus is necessarily and vitally connected to the reality of our union with Jesus. Do you hear that? The call to fearlessness and boldness in mission from Jesus is necessarily and vitally connected to our union with Jesus. Look at verses 26 and 27 again. So, in other words, because of what I just said, have no fear of them, For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus isn't saying anything nonsensical at all, if you listen to him carefully. Because he is saying something that ultimately makes perfect sense. He is saying that since his apostles, these very men, and certainly all of his disciples, are connected to him as their master and them his servants, they will be mistreated like their master, but also there's no need to fear and rather every reason to be bold because he's their master. In other words, true union to Jesus leads to true boldness for Jesus. Spiritual union with Him as Master and Lord will lead to the knowledge of the truth that allegiance to Him is the only sensible option. And you know, we have to see here that He's not just talking about a feeling of boldness or confidence. What he, he doesn't even say be bold as those exact words right here. He certainly says have no fear, but look at what else he says in verse 27. He says what I tell you, say out in the open. Proclaim on the housetops. So it's not just feelings of boldness and confidence and joy because of what God has done for you. It is action that rises up out from that boldness. 
These two commands, to say and to proclaim. And so it's not just don't be afraid. And it's not even just don't be anxious, like from back in verse 19. It's go and act in accordance with that fearlessness. The truth that you've learned from me in the dark, in other words, in relative secret at this phase of Jesus' ministry, go speak it in the light. Go shout it from the rooftops. I find it interesting how this call for boldness is set in this text as a positive in contrast with being afraid as a negative. Because it feels like that's the opposite for us so often, doesn't it? Being bold is the negative thing. (laughs) That's the hard thing to do. That's the thing I don't want to do. That's the thing to avoid. While hanging back, playing it safe, not rocking the boat is the safer, more positive option. When in reality, that's not at all how Jesus frames it. The boldness is the positive. That's the preferable one. That's the one we should all lean towards. Whereas the fearfulness is the negative. And so for Jesus, it's clear logic. Since you are going to be mistreated like I am, don't be afraid. Rather, speak boldly. But friends, it's not even only just clear logic. It's the clear, better way. It's the more favorable way when you think about it. It's the more desirable way, in a sense, because it makes far more sense, if you think about this, brothers and sisters, it makes far more sense to want fellowship with Jesus, to want to be faithful to Him, than to disobey Him, or to deny Him, or to choose a worldly-wise path. When we really think about it, it doesn't make any sense to want the other way. Friends, we get maybe around 80 years on this earth. Many get more, many get less, but if you live to be 80, how short is that in the grand spectrum of things? Even in human terms, 80 years is just this tiny little blip on the timeline of modern history, let alone world history. And then how much more so on the timeline, if you want to use such a word, of eternity? And so what kind of sense does it make, therefore, to be fearful Or to hold back an ounce of our energy, our resources, our time, our gifts from the one shot we get at being part of this call from our Master and Lord to engage with His mission on this earth and be part of spreading His kingdom news. See, my friends, I'm afraid what happens is we get unplugged from reality. And when we get unplugged from reality, this greatest reality of who God is and what He has done and what He's calling us to and what a joy it is, then the wrong starts to seem right and the right starts to seem wrong. Everything feels backwards. And that's why for so many, the kingdom, this kingdom was, as we've been calling it throughout this whole series, unexpected. Things seem upside down at a first glance from those unplugged from reality. Wait, this is how it's supposed to go? I thought the king was going to come overthrow the Romans. He's calling me to lay down my life for one of them? I'm supposed to give up my possessions? I'm supposed to hold on to my money a bit more loosely? I'm supposed to let go of my goals, my hopes, my dreams, my plans, my control, and follow Him, whatever that means? That's crazy. That seems backwards. 
But oh, my friends, it is not at all backwards or crazy or upside down. It is the most real, the most sensible, and the most rewarding thing you could ever imagine. To turn away from self, to turn away from everything that we think in our sin-stained brokenness that life is all about, and then with every ounce of our beings, follow King Jesus. No matter what discomfort will come, no matter what sacrifices I may then be called to make, including the sacrifice that is made when we speak. With real words, with vocal cords vibrating and lips and teeth and tongues articulating, sharing the message of the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so friends, this was a call to fearlessness for the apostles, but it is important for us too because as followers of Jesus, living lives of loving and obedient service to Him is going to take boldness. I mean that in terms of our culture right now. Because, as I think you know, the world by and large is not favorably disposed to the message of the gospel. Certainly some can be favorably disposed to a watered-down version of the gospel. But the true gospel is a message that calls everyone to repent of sin and trust in Jesus as the only way to a relationship with the King of the universe. And that unfavorable disposition of the world towards the true gospel message was clearly played out in these apostles' lives. Several of these very men were crucified at the end of their lives. Church history tells us this. Some of them were beheaded. Some of them were stabbed to death. Some were stoned. Some were even boiled. These men would go on to face this kind of sacrifice, this kind of persecution, this kind of suffering because of their commitment to proclaim the gospel message. But even though they would face hostile oppression to the gospel, just like Jesus did, his apostles also could be assured of having no need to fear for two reasons. Since you will be mistreated, don't be afraid, be bold, because number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Jesus is saying, since you share in Christ's, if you, since you share in my suffering, and because your God is sovereign, as at least part one of this, don't fear. Look at verses 28 through 31. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value, of more value than many sparrows. The sovereignty of God is an amazing and beautiful and glorious doctrine that Christians rejoice and delight in. And it is not always an easy one. We won't get into all of that right now, but this is a favorite for many Christians in terms of an expression of God's sovereignty where we have this beautiful 
glimpse of the complex beauty, power, and transcendence of God and how He is both described as one who has power over souls and one who is as gentle as a bird keeper. It's an amazing description, perhaps even paradoxical to some, where Jesus says that God is just to judge unrepentant rebels, and He is worthy of fear, and He is also gentle with His people like He is with birds. Evidently, God has in His nature, in His character, at the heart of who He is, both the tenderness of one who gently handles little fragile birds and the wrath of one who will send to hell those who do not repent. The actual point of these words about God's ability to destroy both body and soul in hell are not really meant to convict His apostles of their need to believe. They were already His followers. Rather, it was to encourage them of God's power. But isn't it interesting that Jesus is apparently saying that there is both a wrong and a right kind of fear in kingdom mission ministry. Three times in this passage, we've already seen, Jesus says not to fear. But here in verse 28, he says, do fear this sovereign God who has authority and power to send rebels to hell. You see this? Right in the middle of a passage about how his disciples, his apostles that is, and other disciples should not be afraid on their journey and on their mission. He also is apparently saying that there is a right kind of fear that they should live in, and that is the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. Now this is not a major theme of the passage, so I'm not going to go too deeply into this concept. Rather, I'd like to just point to the fact that Proverbs says a lot about this and invite you to examine the book of Proverbs a little further. In fact, in our family, just this past Thursday night, we started reading through Proverbs in our family worship time. And in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. You can make the case that the whole theme of Proverbs is that verse and that true and real wisdom starts with an appropriate kind of fear of God. And if you're working on a definition of the fear of God based on Proverbs 1.7 and Matthew 10.28 here before us, apparently you've got to include some kind of concept of understanding who God is, what He's capable of, what He has done, and then how that affects the way we should live. That's a lot more to it than that, but I think that fits with what Jesus is talking about in our text because he is saying that instead of fearing what man can do to you, which also comes up in Proverbs, by the way, instead of fearing what man can do to you, fear what God can do. So you see what he's saying in verse 28. He's saying people can only kill you. And we go, wait a minute. (laughs) That is not a good thing. But you see his point. People can kill your body, but God's in control of your soul. After we die, something happens to our spirits. We don't just end forever. We go on forever spiritually with our souls. And so part of the implication here is that since man can only kill you physically and not spiritually, you don't need to be afraid of them in the long run because if you're a Jesus follower, your eternity is safe with him. And so, therefore, your earthly life 
while not at all unimportant, isn't on the same level of importance as your eternal life. And so Jesus is saying you don't need to be afraid of how people will respond to you when you speak to them, when you say it in the light, when you proclaim it from the rooftops. You don't need to be afraid of how they will respond to you because their power is so extremely limited. The worst they can do is kill you and end you physically, but that's nothing compared to what God can do. So don't be afraid. Be bold. And proclaim the news of that sovereign God. The sovereign God who knows every hair on your head and who values you far more than he values birds who, by the way, he takes very good care of. That's how sovereign he is. Totally. And if you're his, he's on your side. So don't be afraid since you share in Jesus' suffering because God is sovereign, but also because Jesus is just. And this is closely connected to the previous verses because this connects back to the fear of the Lord statement that he made just a few verses above. Look at verses 20, or 32 to 33. So, everyone who acknowledges me, this is Jesus speaking, before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But... Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying that those who deny him will be denied by him. And to be denied by Jesus will necessarily lead to eternal judgment. And so one could say that part of the point here is that if you're not boldly proclaiming Jesus' kingdom message, and are instead either explicitly or implicitly denying Him, how could you be assured that the justice of Jesus lands in your favor? Because Jesus can't simply be saying here in verses 32-33, through do a good job at evangelism or else I won't be happy and I won't advocate before the Father for you. Now, that would be a works-based salvation, a legalistic kind of relationship with him, which the Bible clearly denies. So it must mean something else. And I think at least part of what it means is that your, our faithfulness to proclaim Jesus publicly is one sign of truly being his. Of truly being that servant of the master who is not afraid, but says in the light and speaks from the rooftops, the message of the gospel. Now friends, I hope you know me well enough by now to know that if you're truly a Christian, I have no desire for you to leave corporate worship feeling worried, condemned, guilty, or afraid that you may or may not be a believer. But at the same time, I am totally fine with people coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the words that He has written. And one of the clearest implications of these words here is that one way that you can be assured of Jesus's advocacy for you is your faithfulness to proclaim him before men he says publicly see that in verse 32 and 33 acknowledge me before men deny me before men this is a public outworking And of course, this does not mean that every Christian is called to serve as a local church pastor or everyone should be a street preacher or everyone needs to be a missionary in a foreign land. No, but it is most definitely a call for every Christian. Every Christian 
to be someone characterized as a proclaimer of Jesus and his kingdom news to actual, real, live people. And when his ambassadors are faithful to him, rather than being ashamed of him, and are bold for his sake, and when they are therefore pursuing opportunities to share the gospel with people, and then whenever they have the opportunity, jumping in and boldly sharing it without fear, they can be assured that those actions are just a piece of the evidence that they have true faith in Jesus. Friends, once again, plug into reality for a minute. Think about it. What in the world kind of sense does a non-missional-minded Christian make? It makes no sense at all. Because if we claim to be people that believe that all people stand condemned before God in their sin and need Jesus' atoning sacrifice and triumphant resurrection in order to be restored to God, and if we claim to believe and to be accountable to everything the Bible says, and that it says that every disciple of Jesus is also a disciple maker for Jesus, then for someone to call themselves a Christian or a disciple of Jesus and not have anyone in their lives that they are pursuing in some way for the purpose of some kind of discipleship, well, then what kind of sense does that make? And so it makes perfect sense for Jesus to say what he says. I am your advocate before the Father if you are associating yourself with me through faith and therefore going on this mission with me. But if you don't, I'm not your advocate. Now, if you're a student in school, I want you to look up here for just a minute. This is exactly the kind of thing you need to remember when you are with your classmates. If you're a Christian, don't be afraid to stand for Jesus and everything that he taught, no matter what that makes you look like to quote-unquote men or other people in your class. Remember that if you're his, he is for you and no one else can do anything to you because Jesus is for you. He has all power. He will stand for you before God the Father who has eternal power over your very soul. But students, if you are ashamed of Him and therefore never talk about Him to your classmates because you're afraid of what that might do for your social status or how it might decrease your number of friends or how your teammates in whatever sport you're playing or your band or orchestra mates or whatever else will view you or even the grades you might receive from a teacher who is hostile to God, then how can you be certain that Jesus won't be ashamed of you too? Oh dear kids, I am in no way wanting to sow seeds of doubt in your mind if you are truly His. Rather, I want to encourage you to stand for Jesus and not be afraid. So all of us must remember that we can be bold we do not need to be afraid because Jesus is just. He will do what is right. Those who are truly His, He will stand for. And those who aren't, He won't just let slide into the kingdom of heaven on the coattails of their family or on the basis of some ritual prayer or a baptism ceremony. 
Now, even as I say these hard things, remember, please, these words are intended by Jesus to be assuring. This is good news for these men who he was sending on his mission. Don't be afraid, even though you're going to suffer, because I am just and I am with you and I will advocate for you before my Father if you are someone who is not ashamed of me, but rather who speaks boldly for me. And so even though there are hard and convicting things in this text for us all to receive, remember that the point of it all is encouragement. It's to to steal our nerve and give us boldness because of the assurance that Jesus is committed to us when we have allegiance to Him through faith. And so, these basic words are for these 12 apostles on their way out, but they are also for us, for Christians today. Not just the Schmitz in North Africa, not just the farmers or, or um, Kessners in Indonesia, not just the Hansons in China, not just the Russells in Mormon Idaho. This is for Redeemer Bible Church in Brighton. The Schmitz or the Kessners. The farmers may face the mistreatment of radical Muslims in their context. The Hansons may face and have faced in some ways the oppressive Chinese government. The Russells have faced the influence of Mormonism in their community. But friends, we are with them. We are part of the disciples of Jesus just as they are. And we can just as easily potentially face the angry opposition of those in our context whose radical political agenda doesn't jive with the Christian message of the rule and reign of Jesus and His justice and His righteousness. So we could face the loss of a client if it's known that we put Jesus and his mission ahead of our career and our business. We could face hostility from a school district if you're a teacher or an executive and you boldly and graciously stand for what God has said is true and right rather than what the culture says we must. We can face the displeasure of a workplace superior if we insist on honest practices. If we are committed to putting the needs of our own earthly family and certainly our spiritual church family ahead of the needs of our own career advancement. We can face awkward interactions because of our commitment to walk in the light regarding our need for Jesus' grace in our lives because of our struggles with sin instead of putting up a facade and being afraid to have some real talk with real people. And yes, friends, one day our church could face literal government oppression and opposition because of our commitment to biblical sexual ethics, gender roles, biblical views on justice and sanctity of the life of the preborn. But listen, my friends, no matter what kind of suffering we will face for Jesus, every step of the way, we need not fear. Because God is sovereign. Because Jesus is just. And because it is a privilege to fellowship with and to follow in the steps of our Master. Let's pray. O Lord, please give us grace in this way. Help us to be bold with the message 
of the good news that the King has come, that He is breaking through, and one day every single ounce of all existence will be fully submitted to Him. Lord, give courage to those in this room who are struggling with fearfulness. Help them to remember that Jesus is on their side if they are His. And so they need not fear what will happen to their career, to their grades, to their friendships, to their bank account if they stand for what's right even when it hurts. If they share the message of the Gospel even when it feels scary. And Lord, should one day in Your sovereign plan our church and her people face real physical oppression and opposition and persecution because of our commitment to King Jesus, please help us to remain bold and to keep on speaking and holding to the truth. We love You, our Master, our Savior, our Lord, and our King Jesus. And we pray in Your name. Let's continue in prayer for a few minutes.